You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is your captain speaking. Uh, let's push on. That was cool. Um, our next, I'll make a very short introduction on this guy. I, I got another friend sent me this book and said um, it was the winner of the best science fiction book at the 2010 Green Book Festival. And as a professional science fiction writer of many years, I thought, what the fuck what is the I? Green <laughs> Book Festival? But I decided, you know, why not give the guy a chance? <laughs> And um, I was uh, privileged to make contact with a uh, somebody who has it wears many hats. He's a pharmacologist. He makes magic sticks, I believe. Mm-hmm. He, um, um, well, I'm not going to go on and on about it. We'll talk about all this after the the. But the reason he's here at this science fiction series is because also, in addition to what Steve. Were, uh, has uh, written. He has also worked the the hallowed traditional and much turned ground of the post Holocaust novel in a quite unique and um, well, I'm not sure it's unique these days, but it's certainly the um, it's it's a, a modern take on an old theme that we'll be talking about the theme, but also the modern take on it. It's about what happens after the change and how the change happens. So it gives, gives me great pleasure to introduce Dale Pendell. Thank you, Terry. Is that good? How is that? Does that sound all right? Okay. Um, well, The Great Bay is uh, mainly a story of California uh, after what I call the collapse. And uh, the Great Bay is uh, the body of salt water that's going to form in the Central Valley of California. Uh, And um, it seems to be more a question of uh, when at this point rather than if. Um, But it's quite beautiful. Uh, and I can see it when I drive down from the Sierras on Highway 20, uh, especially if there's some of that low-lying valley fog, you know, and it uh, creeps around Sutter Buttes, so they look like islands, and um, the way to cross the bay was on catamarans. So my story starts uh, in the near future, and it's on a logarithmic time scale. So um, I started 2021, and then I jumped 10 years, and then 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, then 100, and 200, 300, 500, 1,000, and so forth. Um, So I'm going to read a little story from the center, kind of the center of the book, and this is about uh, 100 years after the collapse. And they've already begun to call uh, the world before the collapse 
pre-call, and later that just gets shortened to preckle. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the preckles. And um, at one point there's a, a piece of space debris that falls out of the sky and buries itself in Nebraska near the Niobrara. And uh, some herders dig it up and find that there are preckle glyphs on it, leading to a widespread cult who think that the preckles lived in the stars and that their return to Earth is imminent. This is in the second century. In 2021, there were no parades for the centennial of the collapse. Anyone who remembered it was dead. In California, it began to rain in the summertime, and sometimes fog covered the foothills of the Sierra. Sturgeon were coming back to the rivers. Higher temperatures in the Amazon reduced transpiration from the forest, resulting in less rain. A drought moved westward through the whole northern Amazon, trees dying and falling like dominoes. In 2150, Greenland was bare. Much of the Arctic ice was gone, and it was still getting warmer. Sea levels had risen 40 feet. Three oceans, oceans jammed currents of, warmed, of warm water against Antarctica. Monsoon-like rains fell for months at a time, and the sinking water drove huge conveyor belts of thermal energy from the tropics to the poles. Mountains of ice were on the move across the continent. It was as if the earth, sensing her fever, sought to cool herself with ice packs. Ferns, heathers, and scrubby beech trees began greening the exposed gravelly soils, gobbling up carbon and setting in motion a new food chain. In the United States, there was an explosion in the alligator population the reptiles expanding into lagoons and marshes all the way up the flooded Mississippi. Malaria followed. With increased rainfall in northern Nevada, along with the destruction of the dams on the Truckee River, the water level in Pyramid Lake rose 120 feet. Trout were again reaching their spawning streams. Walker Lake rose 200 feet surpassing 1930 levels and submerging the huge ammunition depot at Hawthorne. In Utah, the Great Salt Lake alternated between record highs and record lows as drought and flood traded decades. 20 feet of water lay over Sacramento. More and more of California's best bottomland was being submerged every year. The Sacramento Valley had become a great bay, already stretching 125 miles from the Sutter Buttes to Modesto. Inlets of the bay covered most of Napa, Petaluma, Fairfield, and Concord. Nobody had built any dikes. Each storm, the water seemed to move higher. In San Francisco, water covered Market Street past the old Civic Center to Divisadero and reached Valencia Street in the Mission. Water over the marina district was 40 feet deep. Waves smashed anything still standing on 46th Avenue in the sunset. Alameda was underwater. In Berkeley, boats were moored along San Pablo. In 21... 
1970, the Gulf of California breached a low pass south of Mexicali and spilled into the Imperial Valley, flooding Calexico, El Centro, and liberating the Salton Sea for the first time in eight million years. Oysters grew there and left their shells, separated from their relatives by 10,000 feet of sediment. Salt water covered Indio. As the waters of the Great Bay lapped against Marysville and Yuba City in 2180, the Chinese community built, built houseboats. With judicious forethought, they also built shallow junks with bamboo lath sails. The farmers saw a good thing coming and planted forests of bamboo along the rivers. The climate was favorable. As the bay covered Marysville in 2200, the Chinese floated up and down the valley to other ports. A few electrical pylons still reached above the waters of the bay and provided convenient moorings. Bayside communities in the valley began to live by fishing. Along the Sierra foothills, people raised goats, but lost more and more to mountain lions. Acorns were still collected each fall as emergency food and often were needed. Most people found it easier to hunt feral pigs with dogs than raise them penned. Catamarans were the way to cross the valley. San Francisco, in a small way, was becoming a maritime trading center, though many boats sailed all the way in through the Carquinas Strait to the new ports at Concord and Tracy. A tallow industry developed at Chico, producing candles. The Sierra Valley filled with mustangs and became a choice place to live. Grapes, wheat, beans, and a large assortment of green and red vegetables, green and red vegetables were traded up and down the Great Bay from Shasta to Tehachapi. In 2171, a man named Joshua Royce gave a sesquicentennial address to the Scholars Guild in Berkeley on pre-call society. The lecture was open to the public. When he described the compulsory education and that while most could read, few actually did, the laughter was deep and general. Other descriptions of pre-call life, the wage slavery and the hoarding, brought incredulity and shaking heads. The overpopulation, how stupid could they have been? In a more somber tone, he described the deadly armies that defended the elites, the wars that were fought, whole cities bombed and destroyed. He talked about the massive corruption of the government, the propaganda and the prisons and the sham elections controlled by corporations. It was called a democracy, but it wasn't at all what we mean by that. It was really an oligarchy. Representatives weren't even required to do what the people wanted them to do, he said. The whole society was based on accumulating money but the money wasn't really money. It was more like a scorecard in a big game run by the corporations, but an, utter, an utterly ruthless game impoverishing the majority of the population and most of the world. In conclusion, Royce told the audience that in an even older civilization, Rome, the whole city would go crazy over a chariot race. Rosa Inez Vallejo, gave a talk called The Perils of Getting By. She described the legacy technologies they were using, 
and the varied and innovative ways that they had been adapted. However, she warned that their own cleverness in improvising and repairing pre-call equipment and machines was backfiring, that by getting by, they were neglecting any basic manufacturing for themselves. Even our storage batteries are one-of-a-kind handmade articles, she said. The electrician guild spends all their time teaching the basics of lead-acid battery construction. At least the plates could be manufactured by machines. She described pre-called chemical plants that manufactured sulfuric acid and compared them to their own sulfur stills, which, she said, produced weak and impure acid and never enough to keep up even with the demand for batteries. Where would we come up with vanadium, she asked. Because we are able to get by with black powder from our composting, we abandoned our efforts to make smokeless powder and nitrate explosives, for which, again, we would need sulfuric acid. When she warned that even supplies of zinc, which seemed plentiful, could be used up in another generation, someone from the audience quipped, oh, we'll get by. There was general laughter. Zhao Wen Lip, the club elder, gave the philosophical address the main attraction to the general public, about modes of discourse for natural comportment. Winlip compared decision-making processes in collectives and in the Confederation with river meanders and island and habitat formation. Efficiency is not always what it seems, he concluded. This remark, to everyone's delight, drew whistles, applause, catcalls, interruptions, everything but a melee. The guild's own wine was served for the party. Two musicians, a pianist and a trumpet player, presented an excellent rendition of a Bach Allegro. In the spring of 2178, a new flying insect appeared that seemed to hatch out of the ground. They were smaller than the common fly, larger than gnats, and swarmed around people in great numbers. They didn't bite, but they loved to fly into eyes. A bug expert who was queried shrugged and said, Diptera. She had never met a Greek scholar who would say Diptera. Diptera. So everyone called them dips. The insects had such a great base of diversity that one species picked up when another died back. They'd had a lot of practice. Mammals were having more trouble. Infant mortality was so high that people rarely named their children until they were one or two years old. Still, if a child managed to reach adolescence, he or she had an even chance of dying with gray hair. In 2180, a chess craze spread across the bay with championship matches held at the Mechanics Club in San Francisco. A group of scavengers planned a trip to Arizona where they hoped things would be better preserved. They found a whole pallet of tiny Dremel burrs, much in demand by those practicing dentistry with treadle-driven drills. In 2199, atavistic cattle wandered into the valleys of southern France. Monks in the, in the Dordogne celebrated the new century by painting pictures of the oryx-like <laughs> beasts on the walls of their monastery. 
<laughs> and that's what I call the uh, panoptic section. And there's a panoptic section for each chapter. And then after the panoptic, uh, a story. I'll be, I have time to read a little bit of the story? I do think so. Okay. <laughs> well, this story is called Ranger Fly. Uh, year 141 to 156, new calendar. General histories of the Shasta Tehachapi Confederation of Free Communities, archives of the Scholars Guild, Berkeley. Um, and so the communities around the Great Bay after the collapse gradually formed themselves into sort of a loose confederation, though no articles of confederation were ever drawn up, but it was an actuality in effect. They helped each other, um, though nobody was really in charge, but they sent you know, emissaries back and forth and had frequent festivals. Young Fly of the Kern Roadkills Collective had grown up with meetings, and he didn't like them. The hypocrisy was the worst when people would make up all kinds of arguments to support what was obviously selfish aggrandizement. The greedy ones, the grabbers who seemed to have no shame at all in trying to take from the collective. That was the worst. But that would be endurable if the group could ever act effectively to censure and stop the grabbers. But few in the collective even seemed to have the ability to reason well <coughs> or they argued from some sense of law or custom, and not from first principles. Even when the answer to a question seemed, to fly anyway, obvious. Hours could be spent hearing everyone's stupid opinion. Fly didn't like the work that much either. And more and more, he didn't like the company. They even called him the misfit. Jokingly, and in a comradely way, but it was truer than they knew. Hadn't Ocean and her gang of girls made him the butt of their jokes? Fly began spending a lot of time by himself in the mountains above the Kern. He'd stay away for a week at a time, or a month at a time. He always felt better after these sojourns. Then he was glad to see people and carouse with his friends, at least for a night or two. So Fly decided to become a ranger one of the trackers and watchers, the loners who acted as the frontier sentinels of the Confederation. Rangers were well respected and always welcome at camps and homes. For one, they were always full of news. Confederation militias had built forts at Shasta and Donner Pass. The rangers manned these posts as well as the old, old roadkill trading post at Walker Pass and Tehachapi. But Fort Tejone was Ranger headquarters. That's where the chief lived, and that's where in the spring of 141, new calendar, the 17-year-old fly found his way. Their chief had interviewed him, walked with him, and told him he could stay for the summer training and to get himself set up in the bunkhouse. That had been a happy time. There had been outdoor classes and groups of two or three with senior rangers learning woodcraft and trailcraft. But there had also been classes in history, technical classes on explosives and firearms and signaling, and remedial classes in reading 
writing and numbers for those who needed them. A guest lecturer from the Scholars Guild had given a talk on history and political theory. This last, according to the lecturer, mostly about the ways that men can enslave each other. The chief himself had sat in on that talk and had added his own remarks about the important part that their guild fulfilled and the importance of protecting what he called their great experiment in freedom. By the end of the term, but at the end of the term, Fly had the biggest disappointment of his life. He remembered the chief's words exactly. I like you, Fly, but you're not right for the rangers. Rangers depend on knowing how to be invisible, but we do that by turning sideways. You, you're invisible all the time. It's like you don't have a shadow. You don't have a soul. And you have to find it. That is the most important thing that you have to do. Maybe the only important thing. But I can't afford to have you doing it on ranger time. It's been a pleasure having you here. Stop by if you are in the area. The chief had held out his hand, but Fly hadn't shaken it. After that, Fly spent more time than ever in the mountains and on the deserts, any place there weren't a lot of people. He was truly homeless. He honed his skills until he could track even rangers and stay hidden from them. He learned how to join a camp of traders or a camp of Indians easily with a good story. And he learned how to get people to talk. He traded news and told people what was going on in other parts. When people began to call him Ranger Fly, he didn't correct them. Two years later, Fly was shadowing a ranger that he had spotted on Bubbs Creek, west of Kearsarge Pass. Fly knew he was a ranger by the way he moved and by the way he hid his camps. He was an older, Hispanic-looking man, Fly followed him down the King's River for two days and then southwest on Indian Creek toward Cherry Gap. He figured that he was headed to Squaw, to Squaw Valley. Fly was about to slip away when the man suddenly stood up from where he was making camp and threw a hefty rock at the boulders in which High was, Fly was hiding. Come on in and have some tea for God's sake. You've been following me for two days. Fly did so. The man made a very small fire and heated water. He threw in some roasted chicory root and a few, few crushed holly leaves. The holly leaves, that's uh, Ilex vomitoria, uh, which was called the black drink and is our only native caffeine-containing plant. Became very popular threw in a few crushed holly leaves and passed the cup to Fly. After Fly had taken, taken a sip of the tea, the ranger asked him his name. Fly. Ah, of course, Ranger Fly, the man had answered. I've heard of you. People talk about you, Ranger Fly. Pleased to meet you, Ranger Fly. I am Juan Carlos. The man smiled and held out his hand. Juan Carlos the Ranger, in my case, not Ranger Juan Carlos. I don't know why. Fly made his decision right away. 
After all, the man had known his every move for two days. What was the point in lying to him? I'm not really a ranger. Juan Carlos looked at him. I reckon I know a ranger when I see one. No, you don't understand. I was rejected by the chief. If Juan Carlos had been sitting on a stool, he would have fallen off from laughing. Suddenly he stopped and adopted a serious expression. Rejected, you say? The chief didn't hire you on? No, he told me I had to find my soul. Juan Carlos laughed again and shook his head. We were all rejected by the chief, Ranger Fly. That's what a ranger is. <laughs> Anybody he passed works at Tahone. Didn't the chief tell you to report? Fly thought for a moment and nodded. He told me to say hello if I was in the area. How long ago was that? Juan Carlos asked. Two years. Juan Carlos started laughing again. Well, Ranger, maybe it's time for you to report. Fly headed for Fort Tejone the next day. When he got there, a week later, he burst into the chief's office without knocking. The chief looked at him intently a few moments, nodded slightly, and then said the same thing to Fly that he said to every ranger, whether they had been out for years or for a week. Where you been? So Fly told him. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. Let's take five minutes and buy a drink to support the kids. Uh, they're homeless or something that uh, need our help. Those kids need to stop drinking, damn it. Okay, and then uh, we're kind of come back and pretend like we know what we're talking about. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.